They are breaking this studio down, like, this afternoon. It's the end of an era for Paul Ryan. The end of an era for the temporary podcast studio. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm really excited to be joined today by Sarah Cliff and Dylan Scott. And we are going to talk about all-payer rate setting. The hot news of the week, I really It's been a really busy week. You know, it's like James Comey's book is out. Something happened with Michael Cohen. But... Like really, the news Something that has happened on the hill. I don't know the news. <laughs> the news that has driven the week, that has dominated conversation, is a California. It's not quite all, but it's like most payer rate setting. I would say. Yeah, I think that's fair. anyway. It it drove staggering levels of, of public interest. So we we wanted to put this together, but but first we are going to talk a little bit about Paul Ryan, who is not going to be Speaker of the House anymore. He's retiring from Congress. He said and. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about him and, and his legacy. But I thought you, Dylan, had a really good piece about a sort of policy legacy of Ryan's that is is carrying forward very much in conservative politics, even as he fades from the scene personally. And that's on Medicaid. Right. It all fits with the frame that you've put on his announcement that he would retire, which is that, you know, Paul Ryan has not really he did not sell out to Donald Trump. If anything, Donald Trump ended up adopting many of his policy positions. And I think Medicaid is a telling example of that. Candidate Trump said in no uncertain terms that he would not cut Medicaid along with Medicare or Social Security. And whereas, you know, Paul Ryan has apparently been dreaming since he was a kid about um, cutting Medicaid and overhauling the program. And this is like a, an actual thing he said. He it's said like, he, yeah. Since college, right? He said he was doing keg stands in college, when dreaming was, of block granting Medicaid. When he was drinking out of a keg. Who yeah. among us? Of course. It's a totally normal thing to be doing. Anyway, they were apparently completely at odds based on what Trump had sent into candidate and the agenda that Ryan has pushed when he's been in the House. And yet, when you look at what the Trump administration has actually done. Not only did Donald Trump endorse the Obamacare repeal plans that would have put a federal spending cap on Medicaid, cut the program spending over 10 years by $800 billion and led to 14 million people being kicked off of the rolls. Once Obamacare repeal failed, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that Trump is ultimately in charge of has started to institute work requirements. There are still whispers that they could look at trying to approve a block grant, a federal spending cap, if a state were to request a waiver to implement that kind of policy. So basically, the Trump administration is doing everything it can to pare back the Medicaid rolls, which is exactly what Paul Ryan had dreamt of doing for so long. And so candidate Trump's promise not to cut Medicaid is long dead and Paul Ryan's dreams of of overhauling the program, while you know he, he failed in making them permanent by getting Congress to pass a law, he certainly got the Trump administration doing the legwork for him. Although we got pretty far. I mean, I think if you look where we were a year ago, This was basically when the House was passing their Obamacare repeal bill, and that was a proposal that came from Ryan. The bill that they passed last May was built on these white papers that his office had been putting out, kind of like laying the groundwork. And again, really deep cuts to Medicaid. He got his caucus to vote for ending the Medicaid expansion and for creating – I think allowing work requirements, but also creating these caps on Medicaid spending, which have never really existed in the program's – history before. So he certainly pushed it pretty far. I mean, I think the other Paul Ryan legacy in healthcare I'd be remiss not to mention is is on Medicare and, you know, some pretty significant reforms there that I feel like to me were a signature Paul Ryan policy proposal, his ideas of um, cutting back on Medicare, kind of making it more of a program with um, per capita spending instead of this unending entitlement program and um, essentially having seniors shop for different Medicare plans and using this kind of voucher that they would get. So I feel like that hangs around even with Ryan no longer being on the Hill a few months from now. That's going to be a legacy that's really going to stick around policy-wise up there. I mean, what's interesting about what remains of Ryanism from where he started is that if you look at the sort of original Ryan sweeping vision of – privatizing Medicare, capping its spending, block-granting Medicaid, capping its spending, 
I would say as an objection, like this is going to be really bad for poor people. And I think Ryan would say, I mean, I think he would say that that's false because he's a liar, but he would make a different point about it, which is that capping the growth of these big healthcare programs is going to make a big difference to the long-term trajectory of federal spending, which is important to him because it helps you keep taxes low, which, you know, whatever, it, it helps rich people, it serves cosmic justice, it grows the economy, <laughs> well, whatever the reason is Republicans want to do that. When you zoom down to like, you're not privatizing Medicare, you're not block granting Medicaid, you're just doing these work requirements, they're I'm still on my hill saying this is really bad for poor people. I'm not really sure what the counterclaim is on that because the just the aggregate amount of money involved in this work requirements thing is just like not that big. Right? Like right. it's not like okay, if this block grant if this goes through and Democrats never reverse it and we have work requirements on Medicaid in every state for able-bodied non-pregnant blah 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 blah. It's not like that means Tax revenue as seventeen percent of GDP magically becomes sustainable. No, but didn't he have his quote? Was was it him who talked about the people in the hammocks? Like, I feel like I get the Paul Ryan ethos on this. Like, I think it, here it is less about the tax dollars. Oh, right. And like, at least to give, like, I can understand. I, I don't agree with the argument, but I understand like what's going on with him. There is talking about you know the the dignity of work and the idea that. We want to use these programs not as this hammock for people to sit in, but as something to transition them back to working because, you know, not necessarily because of the we'll, we'll lower the tax spending because less people have Medicaid um, when you have a work requirement. But I think the argument, at least to give you know some voice to it, is that these programs should not be a long term solution for the people who use Medicaid, that they should be thought of as a temporary solution and that a work requirement is going to bring more dignity to the lives of these people who are using these programs. Right, but I mean, I, I, I just think I, the, the work requirements issue puts the values issue squarely, right? I mean, I think a lot of the narrative around Ryan for the bulk of his career was like, budget focused, right? You can Google up, there's like a million things about like how he's a budget wonk, about green eye shades and blah, blah, blah. And what's significant about the fact that what we're left with as he exits the stage is this work requirements is that there's money involved, but it's not a budget game changer. This is about, you can phrase it different ways, but like it's about being stingier to poor people right. on the theory that like giving them a swift kick in the pants is going to get them to shape up their lives or something. Not that we're going to save tons of money. I even think though, I mean, I think Sarah's right. Like that's how Ryan would articulate the argument about the dignity of work. But we've even seen some interesting evidence this week about sort of how reality belies the arguments that Republicans make about work requirements and the dignity of work. The uh, Centers on Budget and Policy Priorities put out a study this week that we wrote, wrote up, and I won't dwell on it too much. But the gist of it was even people who are working enough in the aggregate over the course of a year to satisfy the work requirement that Kentucky has put forward, 25% of them are likely to have at least one month during the year where they fall short of the 80-hour requirement that Kentucky requires them to work, and they're therefore at risk of losing coverage. And so it's sort of like even a working person, one in four working people who could be subject to this work requirement and who by all sort of normal conventional definitions are working could still lose coverage because of the way that these requirements are structured. And it's sort of like that. I would be curious to hear what Paul Ryan thinks about that because that seems to be like, to Matt's point, this is just a way to call poor people off of the rolls because they're so rigidly structured that they don't reflect the realities of how poor people actually work, which is that their hours tend to ebb and flow. They might have a gap in employment just because they work in seasonal jobs and that sort of thing. And so I think that, yeah, to Sarah's point, that's the argument, but I, I don't think it reflects the reality of the ground and that, that all evidence suggests that this is really just a way to cut Medicaid. I, I also think, directly. I mean, something that you know I, I've been thinking about recently is because I've been trying to enroll my son in our neighborhood public school. And there's, of course, a residency requirement. You have, you have to live you know, in the right boundary. And that's fine. I mean, I, I don't find that to be politically contentious, that the, <laughs> the school district wants to verify that I live there. We also have to verify that Jose is the appropriate age for the grade. We're trying to get him. Again, those are both good ideas. No, no controversy about it. But it turns out to just be a like quite the paperwork slog. Like it, it 
And it's not even that it's it's harder than you think, just because I had not been living my life with a view to documenting that I actually live in my house, <laughs> precisely because I do live in my house. So it was like I had the wrong address on our office payroll system and all kinds of little complications like that. And it's a reminder that when you create new requirements, right, these requirements are not self-enforcing, whether it's saying, you know, you're going to need to demonstrate citizenship to use some kind of public service. Yeah, it seems reasonable. Services should be for citizens. But like if every time you got on the bus, you needed to like verify that you were a citizen, right? Like that would be a huge pain in the ass. And showing that you're working, particularly for people who are on the margin, like like you were talking about, Dylan, you know, people who may have more than one seasonal job, right? The way you become poor is by not having steady work, mm. typically. And so if you're thinking about people who are on that margin between not working at all and working some, and we would I- all ideally like them to have like more solid work and more money, but they're in that kind of liminal space and you're creating more problems for them, right? Just just in terms of documentation and, and verification. And it's a real like it's a real burden on people. For every one person who you kick off because they're genuinely not working and one person who goes and works more because the requirements stiffen their spine, there's going to be like 50 people who are just still getting the benefits but like now have to do a tremendous amount of extra stuff. Yeah. And to underscore the perversity of it, I think Tennessee is talking about creating a Medicaid work requirement and to pay for the administrative costs of doing so, they're talking about taking money from TANF, the federal cash welfare program, and taking that money so they can cover, you know, all the paperwork and bureaucratic, you know, bureaucratic work that's necessary to implement a Medicaid work requirement, which seems, in a way, so like antithetical to how Republicans talk about the ever-standing bureaucracy and all that paperwork that the government makes you go through. But when it's for a Medicaid work requirement, apparently, it's it's okay. So before we get to our uh, the big news of all payer rate setting, I was curious, Dylan, you spend the most time on the Hill of of any of us, like, where does this leave the Republican caucus? And like, what does, you know, next year look like to you, a Ryan-less, um, a Ryan-less caucus? And like, I don't know, where do, where do they go from here? What changes or what doesn't change policy-wise? That's a good question. I mean, obviously, the biggest question is whether they will be in the majority or the minority still. Um, I do think, kind of to, to Matt's point, like, they've kind of lost the person, you know, Ryan became speaker because sort of however you felt about him in a personal way and whether you thought he was too cozy with businesses or whatever, like he he articulated the conservative agenda better than anybody. And even everybody from the Freedom Caucus to the more sort of moderate Tuesday group Republicans could could get behind him. And I don't get the sense that sort of from a policy agenda perspective, there's another person who could really fill that void. And so I think it'll be interesting to see when there's not sort of a single person who who has sort of taken up and personified all of the conservative agenda, sort of does it become a little more freewheeling and you have chairmen who start to become more powerful because Ryan had centralized policymaking so much in his own office. Um, I think that's what'll be what'll be interesting is 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 it, it had become so centralized in part because they had an actual agenda to implement with Trump becoming president, um, but also because Ryan, you know, knew this stuff and talked about this stuff better than anybody. And I, I don't see an obvious person to take up that mantle that he's been carrying for the last 10 years. Let's take a break. I think of myself as a lifelong learner, and I bet anybody who listens to The Weeds probably thinks of themselves the same way. And The Great Courses Plus is the streaming service that's created for people like us. And if you haven't signed up yet, you really need to. There's unlimited access to thousands of fascinating lectures, and you can learn from the world's best professors and experts about basically anything that interests you. The history of Eastern Europe, the mysteries of human behavior, you could even try to learn a new language. So you can watch The Great Courses Plus anytime, anywhere, and now you can listen along with The Great Courses Plus app. So one course that that I'm recommending is the modern political tradition. You know, it's a look at political theory as it's evolved over time. How is a state best governed? Looks at the fundamental questions, freedom and rights. 
how can we make government something more than the brute exercise of force? And that's where you get at the fundamental concepts that in a lot of ways still drive all of our present day policy debates. I know you're going to get so much out of The Great Courses Plus, so we've got a special limited time offer for you. It's one free month of unlimited access to enjoy any of their lectures. But to get it, you have to go through our special URL. You're going to get a great deal. We're going to get credit. So you start your free month today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. This is Yochi Driesen from Worldly, Fox's weekly podcast on the most important stories in the world. I've worked in journalism for nearly 20 years, and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by the news right now. There's President Trump and Vladimir Putin. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. And there's the North Korean nuclear crisis. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then there's the Russia investigation. The Russians may have something on him personally uh, that they could always roll out and make his life more difficult. Want to make sense of all of this? Subscribe to Worldly. Run packing all of these stories and more every week. Come find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Hi, Weeds fans. Uh, Ezra's away on book leave, but the Ezra Klein show is still going strong. This week, check out his debate with Sam Harris on race and IQ and his follow-up conversation with historian Carol Anderson. She's the author of a great book called White Rage. Uh, These are two really amazing conversations. You're going to want to check them out. All right, Sarah. What what happened? What what what's been dominating the headlines? <laughs> oh this week? man, you guys! It's it's not Comey. It's not Cohen. It is California, looking at some some price regulation. So, this is a bill that came across um, kind of my radar from a story that Melanie Mason wrote in the Los Angeles Times on Monday, looking at a plan where the state would have a commission that would set medical prices in California. And I think there's a, we can take this a few directions. I think there's like some interesting politics, some interesting policy, but really just an excuse to get to um, you know one of those clickbait topics for our, our weeds listeners. All payer rate setting, which is I have described it on Vox as almost a backdoor towards single payer. You know, as I've been doing more research for this episode, I've become more aware of the flaws of this model, which we can get into as well. But basically what California is doing, I talked to the people sponsoring it, you know, a lot of the legislators as well as some of the advocacy groups, and they kind of recognize that there is a big single payer push in California right now, mostly um, from the nurses union. And while that would be nice and all of these groups are single payer supporters, they're kind of looking for, well, what can we do right now? Like, what is the thing we can do on healthcare spending in the Trump administration, something that wouldn't require federal waivers, something that we can just get off the ground right here and right now? And the thing they settled on is what if we had these states um, regulate healthcare prices? Essentially, we set up a commission. And that commission will kind of use Medicare as a guide because someone else has already done this whole big price list. And they will figure out how much everything from a knee replacement to a particular pill to an appendectomy should cost. Um, It's a model we see in a lot of other countries. You know, I think of Germany and Switzerland as all-payer rate-setting models where you have some kind of centralized agency and you have competing private insurance plans. It's not like Canada, where you have one plan that covers each province, people are choosing between private plans, but the prices that those plans pay are very tightly regulated. And that's really the opposite of the American system. As I noted in this story I wrote about California's plan, right now, um, an appendectomy in California, it costs anywhere between $1,500 and $182,000, depending on how good your insurance is negotiating. Um, That's from a researcher out there who's been doing a lot of studying of healthcare prices. It's just crazy the amount of variation. So the idea of all-payer rate setting is to increase efficiency, you know, by having everyone pay the same rate, you know, ideally that brings down the actual spending and also gets rid of a lot of the bureaucracy because hospitals all have their back end offices that are figuring out, you know, should I pay this insurance 1500 or 182,000 for the same 
procedure. So uh, I'll stop there. But that's kind of what's up in California right now. I mean, I think, you know, basically a way to think about this is that if you listen to a Medicare for all proponent, like one thing they will say is actually this is going to be way cheaper, right? If you look at Medicare, it covers people. Medicare will cover a 65-year-old for less money than it costs to cover that person when they were 64, right? I mean, it's old people are, are expensive, but, but when you switch on to Medicare, it saves money. If you look at Canada, right, it's cheaper than the U.S. healthcare system. And so you say, well, why is that, right? Like, is it magic? <laughs> and like, it's not magic, right? It's that they're paying less. They're using their greater purchasing power. And if you dig into a Medicare for all plan, it'll typically, you know, there's a little bit of hand-waving fudge factor, but there's usually some bad guys there. And they're like, well, we're going to squeeze pharma and, and, you know, we're going to pay them less. So that's great, right? But it's the government, right? So like, you don't need to nationalize the healthcare payment system in order to reduce pharmaceutical prices. Like you can just pass a law saying the drugs are cheaper now. <laughs> you can pass a law saying the MRIs are cheaper now. You can pass a law saying what we're going to pay, what an outpatient you know, visit is going to cost is cheaper now. And of course, that's not magic either, right? Like if you say an MRI has got to cost a nickel, then like people aren't going to offer the service at that price. But single payer has that exact same issue, right? And so the vision of all-payer rate setting is that if you're trying to save money by having a government rule that makes the price lower, you can just do that, right, without also redoing the whole back end. It could be complementary or, or not, but that, you know, to the extent that what you like about a Medicare for all system is that it's going to bring unit prices down. You can at least just do the part where you bring the unit prices down. There's an interesting metaphysical question about whether it would really be the case that I am keeping my same insurance plan if a government regulator came in and changed how the healthcare system works. But at least in a superficial sense, like I would keep getting my healthcare from my job. Uh, there would still be- You'd have the same card. Like, yeah, it, it, it would the, the logos and websites would be the same. The HR departments would like still be administering things. How disruptive it would be in practice would have to do with like like how big a deal the regulatory change was. But again, I mean, a, a Medicare for all system has the exact same question, right? Which is you could try to move the prices a lot, but then- People might freak out or leave town, or you could change it a little, in which case there'll be more stability, but you won't have as, as big a gain. So I was wondering about this, actually, because I, I, I read uh, Sarah's explainer, or her original kind of big explainer about all-payer rate setting, which is great, and anybody who's interested in this should go back and read it. But you sort of framed it, and this was a few years ago, as like, you know— Single payer is a pipe dream. And if we want to, if you want to kind of achieve some of the same goals, a more realistic thing and something that states have actually done is all payer rate setting. And obviously, and I think, you know, it was fair to characterize single payer that way at the time. You, you mentioned that like Vermont had just failed with their plan to institute single payer there. It seems like the political salience of single payer has changed over the last couple of years. And I guess I just wondered if we, if the weeds brain trust still thought that sort of, all-payer rate setting is obviously sort of the superior, more practical way to get at some of these similar ideas, or whether single-payer has kind of closed that gap given the way that Medicare for All has become kind of a rallying cry for Democrats and is polling much better, yada, yada. It just crossed my mind because yeah. it seems like a totally fair way to, to to frame it then, but it seems like a lot has changed over the last couple of years in terms of the politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's notable that every Democratic frontrunner for 2020 is now a single-payer supporter, which was definitely not the case in 2016 or 2012. You know, at the same time, when I think of this particular particular moment, you know, when we have the Trump administration, any sort of single payer system, uh, you know, at the state level is going to require some kind of permissions from the federal government. And the expectation is the Trump administration is not going to give those sort of waiver permissions. So when I think of like California at this particular moment, it makes sense to me why they would go this route. And they were yeah. very, you know, you can't talk about all fair rate setting without talking about Maryland and their <laughs> system. And one of the things Maryland does is they really do set across all payers that they have a waiver from the federal government that lets them change Medicare prices and Medicaid, kind of like a true all payers rate setting system. California very clearly made the decision not to go that route because they do not want to deal with waivers. They want to do something that they could do 
on the state level? I mean, it, it raises a question of like, what is your goal with a healthcare system? Do you, you know, think that we need to get rid of all the private health insurers, or do you think that you know, with tight regulation, we could do exactly the same thing with less disruption? And I lean towards that second one, but I don't have a super strong opinion, and I'd be open to being swayed otherwise, just by looking at like a number of European countries that have done it that sort of way, you know, the Switzerland's and Germany's of the world, that they make me think you could get the efficiencies of a government-run plan without going all the way there, and given the starting point we have right now, that that might make a little more sense for the United States. I feel like the temper in the Democratic Party has changed, not so much on the substance of the healthcare issue, but on theories of politics. And that people, you know, if you talk to, to Democrats, senior Democrats on the Hill in 2008, or 2007, they were obsessed with what they took to be the lessons of 1993 and 1994 on healthcare, And that led them to a particular kind of strategy. And now I feel like Democrats have what they take to be the lessons, both the lessons of 2009, but also the lessons of the 2016 campaign. And the lesson that they've taken away is that there's like an old saying that like you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And I think there was a tendency among some Democrats in the aughts and a very pronounced tendency among Hillary Clinton personally to campaign in prose. Mm. And like now I think they want to campaign in poetry again. And there's an almost unrelated question of like what do they actually want to do, right? right? I think it is – Challenging when you when you sort of kick at the tires of you know Senate Democrats who've endorsed Medicare for all plans and then what the plan itself says like how fanatically committed are they to that specific vision I think is very unclear. Yeah. What I do think is true is that most people who are liberals in America think in an abstract sense that the Canadian healthcare system is good, right? Right, And so there is a growing sentiment that if that is a thing that you think and you represent a blue state and you aspire to be a national leader in Democratic Party politics, you should just say that, yeah. right? And then there's like a different, a much more like Obama-ish view that's like, well, okay, I should try to write a plan that I can imagine passing and, you know, doing this, that, and the other thing. And like- the conceptual distinction, though, that I think is important between sort of national nurses union vision and all payer rate setting is whether care should be free at point of service, mm. right? Which is actually different from single payer or not, right? So like actually existing Medicare is not free at point of service, but quote unquote Medicare for all and Canadian healthcare and UK healthcare is. Mm -hmm. And that seems very important to the nurses. It's very important to Bernie Sanders. It's noteworthy, right? Because it it dramatically increases the cost of things to make them free at point of service. Lots of government services are free like that. If you want to go to public school, you want to go to the playground, it's free. Uh, but lots of things aren't, right? The bus isn't free. Uh, even in the good old days of public colleges being cheap, they weren't literally free. And that's like a I don't know. Like it's an airy philosophical question, right? Yeah. Like should we try to ration access through a price signal or should it really be that like you get all the healthcare that you want, right? And all-payer rate setting is like very much like you you could make healthcare a lot cheaper that way, but like the idea would be for it to have a non-zero price. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't really make any sense. So I want to go back to all-payer rate setting because I want to talk a little bit about Maryland, which mm. is kind of like our test case State. So one of the things you saw happen in the 1990s was a number of states, uh, mostly in the Northeast, passed all-payer rate-setting schemes. So I think Matt and I were talking yesterday, literally no debate in healthcare is new. There are papers from like the 1970s and 1980s that are basically having the exact same debate we're having now in 2018. But in the 1990s, all-payer rate-setting was kind of like the new hotness in a way. You saw it being implemented in places like New York. I think Connecticut had one. And then you saw like a fast um, wave of repeal and most states, all of them basically except for Maryland, repeal their all-payer systems. And the reason they do that, and I think one of the big flaws you would see with a plan like California's is that 
hospitals aren't dumb. When their prices get cut, you know, there's another way to make money. It's just to do more. So you saw in Maryland really did, you know, struggle with this in like the late 20, like 2000s, like early 2010s. You saw prices were down, but it wasn't saving money because there was just more healthcare being delivered. You know, that they figured out the the way to make money in this new regime is to just do more services and there's no real control on that. So what Maryland did in 20, I believe the waiver was approved in 2012 and it started in 2014, was they layered a global budget on top of their rate pay, rate setting authorities. This is one of the most confusing healthcare schemes I've ever <laughs> written about. I remember I was at the Washington Post when I had to write about this new waiver and it was honestly one of the more, the most challenging stories I've ever written. But basically what they figured out was that all-payer rate setting on its own sometimes actually isn't the powerful tool we think it's going to be. You know, even if you set the price for appendectomies, and, and I don't think like there's malpractice going on, but like on more edge cases, you might just do more of them. That might just become standard practice. So what Maryland does now, and I think, you know, I've been looking through, there's a vicious fight in the healthcare literature about whether it's working. And I think there's, you know, early evidence that it's seeing some promising signs, but not all the way there. But they essentially give each hospital a budget at this point and say, you know, this is how much money you get for the year. And that changes the incentives pretty significantly where there is less incentive to to doing more. So I think it is notable that Maryland, which has had the longest standing all payer rate setting system, has kind of moved away from the rate setting part of it because of some of the perverse incentives that come up. And I could see, you know, if this California bill did pass something similar unfolding out out there. And like that is something I think a healthcare system needs to guard against in a way. But Sarah, yeah. I think a normie would say, <laughs> oh, the plan made healthcare services cheaper so that if you were already buying healthcare services, now you save money. But it also got them to provide more services. So healthcare became both cheaper and more plentiful. Okay, so I would think about that as like my premiums didn't go down. I think that's what people want, right? Like they want to be able to pay less for healthcare, and they didn't because your hospital is doing like more MRI scans and doing you know more care, and like maybe some of that was needed. So well, maybe like as like, a patient, you're getting more care, though. Right, but it's not necessarily to your benefit. Like, I think there's a question of like, are you getting healthier? Well, that's yeah. why that's, I, that's why question. I phrase this as a normie. I understand, <laughs> but I mean, but I, mean I, I think this is important. You know, as as liberals argue amongst themselves on this, right? Like, there's like a huge like wonks versus normies <laughs> split on the question of like, is it good for people to be able to consume more healthcare services, right? And I think this is ultimately like why the politics of Obamacare kept blowing up, right? Because like in the Obama vision, there's like a handful of poor people who need to be able to consume more healthcare services, but like most people need to consume less. And that's why we're like bending the cost curve, blah, 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 blah. But like what normal people want is to just go see the doctor and have that be cheap. Right. Right. They want their they want their premiums to be cheap, but they also want their visits to be cheap. They want their deductibles to be low. They want their copayments to be low. They want like the healthcare to be But I think that's the question then. Because yeah. if you know, if, if everyone is going to the doctor all the time, then you're not getting that lower premium. And I don't know like what the right. trade off is I make in my mind of like, oh well my premiums are going down, but like I pay a smaller, you know, Coinsurance when I go to the doctor, so I'm feeling well. It depends right. how much of a hypochondriac you are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think another way to think about this is that you know I th- everybody seems to agree that fee for service healthcare is bad, where you just pay somebody for a service and that gives doctors and hospitals an incentive to rack up as many services as they can because they're going to get paid more. And I think to Sarah's point, like I'll pay a rate setting put some limits on how much you can exploit a fee-for-service system, but it doesn't totally remove the incentives to just rack up as many services as you can. But but what Maryland has done by layering on this global budgeting, where it's not just like, we're going to pay you the same price for every service, but we're only going to pay you so much in total, that actually helps to start to rein in the costs. And potentially, if that leads to insurers paying less, theoretically, that would start to bring down costs for actual people. I came out of this wondering if the only way to really make all of this work is to have that two-tiered, not only are we standardizing prices, 
but we're starting to put we're putting a cap on how much we're going right. to spend on healthcare altogether. Well, so I think it's also worth talking about geography here, right? Because Maryland is a. I mean, all states are unique, beautiful snowflakes, but but you know, Maryland is this like funny shaped state in which the vast majority of people live in this like pretty narrow corridor from the D.C. suburbs to the Baltimore suburbs and the city of Baltimore itself, right? And that area is like jam-packed with healthcare facilities, uh, both because like Baltimore is a city, right? Like cities are epicenters of healthcare because the uh, NIH is like literally in Bethesda in the in the DC suburbs. It's like big healthcare territory, right? It's comparable to Massachusetts in, in that regard, right? Densely populated, very suburban, uh, educated, like tons and tons of, of healthcare around. And we're only talking in the, the, the rate setting relates to hospitals, Mm -hmm. right, specifically, right? So Maryland has a lot of hospitals and a good amount of uh, transportation flexibility, some kind of potential competition type stuff there. So all things considered, I would say that hospital-focused price regulation in heavily urbanized states is like not actually where I would expect there to be a lot of gains Mm -hmm. from something like this. It happens to be that Maryland is the state that does this. But when you're talking about a state where you have a lot of monopoly healthcare providers, right? I mean, you're talking about a typical patient in Montana probably does not have a lot of hospital options. So, rate regulation could be a much more powerful tool there. There's also the risk of like blowing it up, right? You like lose one hospital and half the state now has no access to treatment. But it's the kind of thing where like in a standard economics framework, like a regulator who does it well could help a lot and a regulator who does it poorly could like generate a disaster. But where price regulation would be a really big deal because there's no competition, right? And then again, on pharmaceuticals, which is where this comes up all the time, people will call it like bargaining, quote unquote, but you're talking about price regulation, right? So, because for pharmaceuticals, because the marginal cost of manufacturing a pill is very, very low, the odds of creating a catastrophic blow up by bringing the price down are also really, really low. And people, you know, the like make it up in volume tactic has a sort of different valence there. Like, I'm not going to take medicine for an illness I don't have, mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> how cheap you make it. Um, you know, there's something, right? But there's a lot of people with chronic conditions who are taking pills, and the pills are expensive. And if you just made the pills cheaper, they could save a lot of money. That's not what Maryland is doing, right? But like in a, in a Germany or Switzerland, right, in a national level all-payer scheme, like that's one of the major prices that you would be regulating, I assume. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is bargaining in a way, because I say one of the things, like, if you go even further to this, like, you um, end up in discussions about, like, well, what, are, are we even going to cover that service? And you see those discussions kind of happen less around hospital services, where I think most things that hospitals do would tend to get covered under a rate-setting scheme, but more around, you know, a lot of, like, expensive cancer therapies, for example. You see constant fights over this in Britain over, you know, when NICE, the um, National Institute for Clinical Evaluation, I believe is what it stands for. This is the death panel, right? The death panels, <laughs> essentially, where they say, you know, this drug maker wants to charge X and like, we're not willing to pay for it because we don't think it actually delivers good health outcare outcomes. So we are not going to. And then you see huge consumer outcry. So I mean, one of the things around rate setting that I think like is a level of, of bargaining is that the providers at some level like do have the ability to walk away. And I think it's easier for drug makers because, you know, we're talking about the marginal cost of producing pills. They're selling all across the world. It's harder for, you know, like Johns Hopkins Hospital in Maryland to walk away because they have built a hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And, you know, they can't really just go negotiate with like D.C. or Virginia or somewhere else. But I think there is like that's one of the other things that gets challenging with all-payer rate setting with single-payer systems is, you know, the only way that you have teeth in a negotiation, and this isn't just in healthcare, this is more general, is if you're willing to say no to some things or else, you know, the person you're negotiating with is going to have all the power. And I think that's one of the kind of challenging things going on. And I think even in a hospital rate setting system, like you will see hospitals organize around like how they think they can make the most profit. So if they feel like 
they negotiated really well on MRIs, they might like start buying a few more MRIs machines and saying, eh, like, let's go get that checked out by MRI, better, better safe than sorry, versus ratcheting back things that are a little bit less of a margin. So I think it's tricky business, the logistics of actually of going from the theory of setting the prices to actually setting good prices. And like you said, for particularly, I think, for rural hospitals that are operating with a small margin and where patients, you know, don't really have much choice of where to go, like that can be a pretty big deal to get that get that wrong and make it impossible for those hospitals to operate. So on this urban rule issue that Matt brought up, I'm curious, because my sense was you mentioned the uh, the vicious wonk fight about whether this is working or not. And my sense was is that was kind of one of the points of disagreement is one study looked at sort of the early implementation, which was mostly in rural mm-hmm. hospitals, and it, it didn't seem to be working great. But then the more recent study took a more holistic view and, and looked a little farther along in the timeline, and they seemed to find that it, that we were finding savings and this was working pretty well. And I was curious, you you know this issue better than I do. I'm curious where you kind of came out in this fight. Like basically, is this working in Maryland or yeah, not? So, so the first study you mentioned, I think it's the health affairs study, which looks at, so when Maryland kind of started its rate setting scheme, you know, the waiver they had about seven or eight years ago was just rural hospitals and it didn't have that global budgeting element. And, and you did have this finding that it wasn't really doing what they wanted it to do. It might have been doing, like as Matt would say, the normies wanted it to do. You're saying lower prices, but higher utilization. And that's when you see the layering in of the global budgets and expanding it to all Maryland hospitals. And then you have two separate studies come out, one from JAMA, um, which is independent of the government and one from RTI, which is the evaluator that CMS is using to look at how Maryland is going. And I've, you know, I've read through those. I generally think that there's promise, but it's early is how I think about what's going on there, that there are some promising results, particularly around certain um, ambulatory conditions that you're seeing a reduction in admissions. But I think there's also some questions about how it's interacting with the outpatient system. That's a side of the system isn't rate regulated. And like, are you just seeing like a shift towards that? So it's still early. I mean, Maryland's latest iteration of this only started in 2014 and we're still getting data on it. But it it seems like from the research I've read that there's certainly some promise there. It's a five-year project, right? Yeah. So we've got a couple more years to go. Yeah, I think we're through three years of evaluation. It's a little interesting how little impact this makes in a sort of practical level, right? So like we we all three of us live in DC. Maryland is like a stone's throw away. I'm sure we all know people who live in I live Maryland. I live in Maryland. I'm subject okay. to all payer rate settings. Wait, what's that like? But so like people talk about this stuff. Like I know people who've like used to live in DC, but they moved to the suburbs or who are relocating to the area and considering like Maryland or Virginia. And it's like people pay a lot of attention to like their commute property tax rates, to some extent income tax rates, if they have kids, public schools. Like, I've never heard anybody mention the, like, completely different conceptual design of the health insurance system. It didn't cross my mind. (laughs) Even though health, I mean, there's some obscure policy issues in the world, but, like, healthcare is, like, that's, like, a pretty high-profile one. Like, people are aware that this is a a thing that exists. Um, and it does not, whatever kind of difference it's making, it's like not a big enough difference that anyone seems to, to well, I mean, the way they care. study it, when Medicare is studying it, they're not like looking at like, are people getting a better deal? They're looking at it as the federal government getting a better right. deal. Like they are looking at it. And I think this is something Ezra's talked about on the podcast. Like there are very, very different definitions of affordable and cost saving right. for me, the patient versus Medicare, the person paying for healthcare. And there they've been pretty happy. You know, their Medicare with their evaluation, they feel like they are generating cost savings because you're seeing less utilization of these higher um, higher value services that it seems like hospitals are doing something because of the global budgeting to try and ratchet down on that. But like for me as a person that doesn't hold much salience, but, right? But I would actually be interested to see like flows of retirees or, or something like that, right? Because I mean – what. You could imagine, right, like a state doing something to reduce its localized Medicare spending. And so the like Medicare administrators are like, oh, that's great. But like actually senior citizens hate it. 
Right. Right. And like either they're being made miserable or they're leaving to go someplace else. Because it's like, oh, so like one way you could reduce Medicare spending in Delaware is say that, well, if you're over 65 and you go to the hospital, uh, you get whacked on the head with a baseball bat. <laughs> right. Because like then you either wouldn't go to the hospital or you'd move to a different state. But like, would you have helped anybody with that? Like, no, obviously. Right. That's a bad idea. And with a lot of policy areas. Right. It's like states run their university systems. And we have some thought that like if you do a really bad job of it, like that will be bad for your state. Like people won't want to go there. Your businesses won't, won't like it. Something like that. And it's just I think like an interesting question is like, is Maryland managing its healthcare system in some way that makes it attractive or unattractive to people or businesses? It is the richest state in, in the union, which yeah. did not used to be the case. So I think they're doing something right. I think to this point, one of the more interesting findings in the the report that was even pretty positive about how all pair rate setting and the global budgets was going is, and this speaks to sort of normal people's experiences with the system, is there's this idea of continuity of care. And there's sort of a general theory in in healthcare right now that if we if we just give the healthcare system a set amount of money that will that will encourage all the different providers and the doctors and the hospitals and everybody who's a part of the system to work together better and will provide a more kind of holistic and seamless experience for the patient. And yet the RTI report um, which is the report that did find savings for the federal government, they did single out that it did not seem that hospitals and you know the doctors that they work with outside of the hospitals had done any better job of sort of making the patient's experience any better or improving on that continuity of care. It seems like almost you know this has been a, a budgetary exercise and maybe even a successful one, but it, it doesn't necessarily seem right now that in terms of the health care that people actually receive, that it's all changing all that much. And maybe that's, to your point, Matt, why it can seem sort of invisible. Um, to the patient. Right. I don't know. Just, I, it stuck out to me. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I do, I mean, <laughs> healthcare is very complicated. There's a lot of different stakeholders in it. And I think that it sometimes becomes unclear in these discussions, like, whose problem are we trying to help mm. and why and to what end, right? And so the Maryland evaluations seem to me to just take for granted that what we are interested in doing is reducing aggregate healthcare spending, right? That there's not a lot of interest in other potential dimensions of this. And I don't I I have like some sympathy for for why they're looking at it that way, but it but it does seem a little bit strange to me, like in some respects. It's like I, I would rather see some of these evaluators step back and like, look, I mean, I, I know why they don't, but like, what's up with Maryland? What are the problems in Maryland society? And like, how can the healthcare system help contribute to fixing those problems, right? Because otherwise, it becomes very sort of unmoored because, you know, people's tastes differ, their health status differs, their priorities differ. Like, it's very... Nothing works for everybody in all situations and whatever, but you can look at a place and say, like, what is the issue here? Like, what are we trying to deal with? And it's not totally clear to me, like, what Maryland is attempting to accomplish with this policy. Well, I think they're attempting to accomplish um, Don Berwick's triple aim of lower, what is it, lower spending, better quality um, and better access. So, I, I mean, I think I, I would give them give Maryland a little more credit here. The idea is to make sure that they are providing the care that people need while making that care affordable for the state so they have money to spend on other things like education, like their roads, like the myriad other things that a state or a federal government would want to spend money on. And I think that is one of the places where with the global budgeting, it does become something that I would imagine the people regulating this are are guarding against. Because one way to hit your global budget is just to, you know, like you said, like just not provide care is very, very cheap to say, yeah, I don't think you need that. You don't need to come in. That's a lot cheaper. And I think when you look at any evaluation I've seen of global budgets like this, there's constantly a eye on quality and like what is happening to the actual people who are getting care, because I think it would be quite worrisome if we saw Maryland meeting all of its savings targets, but all of a sudden, like, the mortality rate of Medicare enrollees skyrocketing or something, or seeing, you know, some kind of negative health indicators. And I think I would 
be surprised if that is something that the government does not is not looking at, um, you know, as they evaluate and keep an eye on Maryland because they are under, you know, Medicare and Medicaid's. They are under the federal government's watch. That's why these evaluations exist. That's why, um, you know, we have these reports from RTIs because Medicare is watching what is happening and, you know, likely using that information to make decisions about whether they will let this happen in in another state in the future. But like we know, right, that if what you're concerned about is like population level health outcomes, that this like futzing around with the hospital payment system is like not the way to do that, right? I mean, I think it's one of the ways to do it. I don't think it's going to be everything, but I think it's certainly like a tool in the toolbox along with like the things like Baltimore's health commissioner is doing on opioids along with the other things going on. I I don't. Right. I I think it's something. And we can't like it's hard too, right? Like we shouldn't minimize how just difficult it is to do this. Like Obamacare or the Obama administration launched an initiative that Weeds listeners may be familiar with called Accountable Care Organizations. We're kind of founded on the premise that like, all right, if we give this group of doctors and hospitals a set amount of money and sort of encourage them to have higher quality by giving them bonuses if they do have better outcomes. And and so it was sort of founded on this exactly what we're talking about. And yet there's a pretty big debate right now about whether it's done any good, even though it's been in place for a couple of years. So it might just be like, I don't know if we have any great ideas for how you can both keep costs in check while also delivering better care. There have been my point only being that there have been initiatives devoted right. to this and and it's not at all clear that they've had much success. Actually, I'm curious. You you guys covered the Trump HHS and you know, we were talking about work requirements and stuff before. Like, are they doing anything else outside the sort of area of the targeted programs to the poor? Like, are there some of these Obamacare initiatives that they like and are expanding? Are they killing stuff? Like, do they have thoughts about sort of like mainstream Medicare usage by non-poor people? They haven't done a lot. Like the one thing I can think that they did do is they ended their, the Obama administration had started a program that would do a bundled payment for a for joint replacements for knee replacements. It was again a similar idea. We're going to give you a set amount of money, and so that and that will encourage you to make sure that you you hit these cost targets when you're replacing somebody's knee, and. The Trump administration ended that, I'm pretty sure. Um, And to my knowledge, they haven't really expressed a lot of interest in other kind of payment reform models that would try to meet this both cost and quality question. Yeah, I mean, that was generally true for the first year of HHS under Tom Price. Yeah, My sense is that might be shifting with our new HHS secretary, Alex Azar. You know, Tom Price was a former orthopedic surgeon, orthopedic surgeons were not thrilled with these global, you know, um, they, they are some of the ones who are most affected by the joint replacement payment changes. So I, I think Tom Price felt like a bit of an outlier to me in that he was not so keen on a lot of these pay-for-value initiatives, which actually tend to be decently bipartisan. Um, I think if you, like, call it all-payer rate setting, that's probably a polarizing term because, like, we've been writing stuff about how all-payer rate setting is a backdoor to single payers. So <laughs> I think things like that are not moving forward. But this idea of, you know, it, it gets into, like, a kind of gray bipartisan area when we're talking about, you know, set payments for certain procedures that kind of, like, edges us towards this idea of per capita caps and, like, more government price setting to create limits on spending. And it ends up in kind of like a weird bipartisan area that has not been nearly as polarized as um, as the Affordable Care Act's insurance expansion. So I think it's a bit, I mean, Alex Azar has been in office for three or four, or three-ish or so months, I think at this point. Yeah, it's early. Um, so I'm, I don't know what it looks like under him, but he's kind of the guy who'd be driving this train. Speaking of weird spaces, uh, this is going to be our our last episode in this oddball temporary podcast studio. Looking forward to coming back next week from a shiny new podcast studio. No, we're just back to our old studio. Oh, we're back. To explain, gets the new studio. Oh, okay. Someone else is getting the new studio. We're going to be back in the old studio, but it's going to be amazing. It's a great studio. Um, So we hope you will be with us there next week. I want to thank Dylan for joining us. Thanks to Griffin Tanner, our engineer. Thanks to Bridget Armstrong, our producer. Of course, to our sponsors and to all of you out there listening. We will be back next week. Mm-hmm.